This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Okay, let's go to God in prayer as uh, we ask Him to help us to understand His Word. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray that you may help us to truly ponder, reflect, and meditate upon the deep and profound words that we hear in your word today. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. What makes life worth living? Right, what makes life worth living? I was reading a book uh, a while ago, which says that one of the things that makes humans unique from animals is our ability to be introspective and to reflect upon life. Because you know, like, if you have a pet dog, like the dogs don't sit there and thinking, you know, what is the meaning of life? Uh, basically, only human beings think about what is the meaning of life, right? We have the ability to step back out of life and to look at our lives and to ask ourselves, what makes life worth living? Is there anything really substantial enough that is big enough for me to really fill my life with where it provides meaning? Now, in the modern world, there are many things in which we're told provide meaning in our life. I mean, you read the Sunday Times and this morning, you read about people who have become really rich and you think maybe riches provide meaning in life. Or maybe you read the Business Times and you read about entrepreneurs who pour themselves into their business and you think okay, maybe, maybe meaning can be found in the work or the business that I create. Or maybe you belong to the generation that believes in pleasure. You know, thank God it's Friday, right? TGIF, we live for the weekends. Or maybe it's family and relationships. Well, today we're going to open uh, the Bible. We're coming to a very strange book for many people, which is the book of Ecclesiastes. And the teacher in the book of Ecclesiastes says something very shocking to begin with, because when he asks the question, is life worth living? He begins in the very first section of Ecclesiastes in verse 2 by saying, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. Now, if you look up in the, uh, the, the slide here, you can see that some of your other translations, if you use some other versions of the Bible, you will actually translate it as vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now, you may sort of wonder, why is it in different translations of the Bible, it's translated as meaninglessness or vanity. Why can't they just settle on one word? And I think the thing is because uh, the Hebrew word that is here called Hebel, right, is actually a word which has very deep and profound meaning. So the word here, Hebel, actually can, first of all, have the idea of something that's very fleeting, something that's very passing, something that's very ephemeral, and transitory, something that's not permanent, lasting, or enduring. So it gives you the picture of like steam coming from a kettle. You know, you boil water and the steam coming out of the kettle. The steam there is there, but it's gone the next moment. Or the idea of dew on the ground, which is here one moment and then disappears. So the idea here is that the teacher is saying that there is no permanence, no substance, no significance, long-term significance in life. 
And that's why I think in the English translation that we read today in NIV, it then goes on to say that because life is so transitory, the things of this life are so ephemeral and fleeting, therefore it is meaningless, it is futile and pointless. And this phrase uh, that keeps appearing in the book Ecclesiastes is the word chasing after the wind. Right? So in verse 14 of chapter 1, it talks about meaninglessness in terms of chasing after the wind. Now, you go outside, you feel the breeze on your face. Maybe as a young child, you chase after the wind. You know, maybe when you blow your bubbles or whatever. But when you're older, you don't chase after the wind, right? Because you never catch the wind. It is a futile exercise. It is a meaningless exercise of chasing after the wind. And that is the meaning of the word havel. Meaningless, transitory, fleeting. And the teacher here doesn't just say that life is havel. He keeps piling on the superlatives, right? He says, Havel, 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 everything is Havel. Everything is transitory, everything is meaningless. There is no substance in this world. And this word Havel is actually repeated 38 times in the whole book of Ecclesiastes. So it's not something which is a thought which the teacher just comes across and then he leaves. But it's a theme that goes through the whole book of Ecclesiastes. Now, the teacher is someone who is thinking very deeply about this question about the meaning of life. Because in verse 3, he asks the question, and this question basically summarizes the question of the whole of Ecclesiastes. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun. This question, right, this question basically is the question which drives the whole of the book of Ecclesiastes. What is the gain? Right, is the business word, is the commercial word, what is the profit of life? What is the meaning? What do you, what do you actually get from life at the end of the day? Is there any return from life at the end of the day? So the teacher is not a romantic person. He's not an idealist, he's not a dreamer, he's not a wishy-washy, gullible person. He's grounded in terms of really systematically looking at life to say, is there anything substantial in which I can give my life to because it gives me meaning? But he also brings up this very important phrase, which he keeps repeating over and over again. In fact, he repeats 30 times in the book Ecclesiastes, under the sun, under the sun, under the sun. The reason why he uses this word under the sun is to show the curriculum or the syllabus that he is examining. So you know you go to do an exam at school or you do a test or you write an essay, right? And the teacher will say, okay, this comes from the first 15 books or the first 15 chapters of this book or everything we have learnt in this particular year is examinable. Well, the teacher here is saying that in the book of Ecclesiastes, he wants to ask the question, is there any gain under the sun? Now, it's not as if it's very hot under the sun, right? But he's trying to show the limits of his examination. When he says under the sun, it is a very important phrase because he is saying, is there anything that can be found from north to south, east to west, 
in this world without reference to God. Right? Under the sun is the teacher's way of saying, can I find meaning in this life outside of the revelation of God in this world? Outside of God acting in this world? Is there anything that actually gives me meaning? Is there gain in this world? So we begin in the first three verses very clearly by saying, if you look at the next slide, the central thesis of the teacher is, it's all havel, all passing, all meaningless. The central question is, is there any gain under the sun? When we look under the sun, can we find meaning in this life? Any substance that I can give my life to? He looks in verse 4 to 7 to try to find out if that's true. So in verse 4 he says, Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north, round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. Now, what he's saying is, the generations of humanity come and go, but the world, the natural world, remains the same. The sun rises, the sun sets. Tomorrow the sun rises, sunsets. The wind comes here, the wind goes, the, the, the sea fills up, the, the streams, then the stream falls out. It just goes around in the cycle over and over again. And what he is fundamentally saying is, our lives do not make a difference in this world that we live in. It is meaningless because our lives do not contribute any change in this world. In a sense, that's very true, right? If like, in, in a very sad way, I mean, sometimes when you read Ecclesiastes, you kind of like think it doesn't want to drive you towards suicidal thinking. But if you were to ask yourself, if you were to disappear from the world today, how long would it take to replace you? How long would it take for your presence to really be missed? I mean, like, imagine if, I remember when I was at work, right? I worked for four years as an accountant in a particular firm. And I thought I was doing very important work. Then after I left, I went to another job. Somebody else replaced me. And I thought, well, you know, this person is going to be giving me lots of phone calls to ask me about all the stuff I left behind. He gave me one phone call. And after that, I never heard from him again. And everything was normal, right? It's like you think you're very important, but actually your, your work, even your very existence, doesn't change anything. The world just keeps going round and round and round without you. Uh, I know somebody uh, a few years older than me, he's the, he was the vice president of an insurance company in Singapore, he got retrenched. After he's retrenched, the company still does really well, right? People still buy insurance for this company, nothing changes. Fundamentally, what it's really trying to say is that our lives do not actually make any difference in the world that we live in. Now, you might sort of say, well, it's because, you know, all of us here are relatively 
insignificant and minor people, that's why we don't really make a difference, right? Maybe if we really endeavoured to do great things, we would make a difference in this world. So I remember reading uh, when I was in school, I don't even know whether in school today we do poetry, but when I was in school we did poetry. (laughs) I hope you all know what poetry is. Anyway, so I remember one poem that really stuck with me. It's this poem called Ozymandias. And uh, it's, it's it's a it's a very profound poem, right? But I'm not sure whether we can connect with it. So I thought, I found this cartoon. Actually, it's really interesting because the, the cartoon is written by the son of a, the son-in-law of a neighbor of mine. Okay? So then I'll read it, and you can see the cartoons if you don't appreciate comment, comment, uh, uh, poetry, right? So I met a traveler from an antique land who said two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command. Tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear, My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings, Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains round the decay of that colossal wreck. Boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. And I think that in many ways captures what Ecclesiastes is saying. Right? You, 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 you can build these great empires, you can do these great things. But generations will come and generations will go, and the earth will remain the same. The lone and level sands will stretch far away, and whatever you did doesn't count. There's no significance to it, because the world just keeps going round and round, whether you were there or not. The teacher then goes on in verse 8, and then he says, All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, and nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, Look, there is something new. It is here already long ago. It was here before our time. Now I think this understanding of poetry... And rhyme is very important because actually when you read the book Ecclesiastes, a lot of it is communicated that way, right? He doesn't speak in terms of bold and clear, simple prose, right? He just tells you things in riddles, in a sense, in poetry. So what he's saying is, you know, nature goes round and round and round, right? The, the, the sun rises, sets, rises, sets, the ocean comes, goes to the stream, goes back to the ocean, the wind goes here goes there, goes round and round again. And he says what we see in the natural world, we see in human nature, in ourselves. Right? Because we are never satisfied. We never have enough of seeing. We never have enough of ear, hearing. Right? Our eyes are never full. Our ears are never full. It's all so weary. Right? Uh, so in my Bible study... So, you know, it's all very sien, right, you know. It's all about 
Sienism or Scientology, right? It's all, the world is very Sien, right? Because after a while, it just becomes monotonous and, and very, there's a, no, nothing is new in a sense. And I think it's very true, right? Because what we see in nature, we experience ourselves. We are never satisfied. We never see anything and say, okay, that's it. I never see anything else. Or I hear something and I never hear anything else again. You know, you watch uh, Avengers Affinity and you think, wow, that's a great movie. But then again, you're looking forward to the next one, right? Or you have your latest iPhone and you want another iPhone, right? Or you drive a BMW and then after a couple of months, you think, I'm not very satisfied, you know, because I see this Lamborghini beside me. You know, it's like your desire never ends. Your, your human nature is like nature. It's going round and round. It's never full. It's never really satisfied. And how weary it is because you're just chasing after things over and over again. But he doesn't just say that there's this sienness in human nature. He says in human society as a whole, things do not change. There's nothing ever really new. Right? But the problem is, you might say, well, yeah, there are new things. right? I mean, they didn't have Facebook before. They didn't have Google. They didn't have Internet. But the teacher is looking at a much deeper, bigger level. He's saying, do things actually really change? Uh, do we still see wars, conflict? Do we still see suffering, starvation? Do we still see injustice, oppressiveness? Do we still see at a personal level, uh, parents uh, and, and, and children fighting, or, or husbands and wives uh, at, at, uh, at conflict, do we see people being cruel to one another? Do we see people bullying one another? Does anything really change? So on a surface level, yes, everything is new. Yeah, okay, I've got my fancy Facebook. I've got my Twitter. I've got my WhatsApp. But in the way that we interact with one another, are we still trying to impress one another? Are we still being rude to one another? Are we still changing in the way that we fundamentally are. And the teacher says no, right? Because there is really nothing new. Even when things seem new, they're really old things in new clothes. So I think just last Sunday or the Sunday before, I was watching Channel News Asia and uh, there was this program on Channel News Asia, I think it's called the Documentary of the Week, talking about the, the rise of social media. And they were talking about how actually with the rise of social media, are people actually happier? No, they're not. Are people actually better informed? And the surprising thing is, no, they're not. You know, I went on to interview all these people who are involved in politics and psychology. And we think that social media increases people's knowledge and the transparency but actually, social media just increases the ability of people to tell you what you want to hear and to put out untruths and false truths into this world. And the teacher says that it's all havel. It's meaningless. There is nothing new in human nature. There's nothing new in society. It's all the same. It's all meaningless. What even goes on worse than that is verse 11. No one remembers the former generations. And even those 
yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. So this is becoming really depressing, right? Because not only do we live meaningless lives where we cannot effect meaningful change in anything, and human nature and human society go round and round, but after we live these meaningless lives, when we die, no one remembers us. There is no memory of us. Now, um, I, I forgot to clarify my wife actually, because we, many years ago I went with her relatives to uh, China, to her relative's uh, house in, uh, in, in China, which is Hakka, right? So it's really interesting because they actually have a, a temple, like a shrine, where inside are ascribed all the generations of uh, their line of relatives. And, and it's, just, it's a, 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 this book of, I don't know, like 20 or 30 generations of my wife's family. Yeah, unfortunately, because I, I married into it, I'm not, my name is not there, right? So I'm forgotten even before it began, right? But the thing is, I was thinking, well, this is really remarkable that they remember all these people, but actually how many people remember in a real way these people? Because the names are there, but who are they? What were they like? What were their passions? What were their personality? What was their character? Nobody knows. So I remember watching this uh, movie quite a while ago. If you ever get a chance, you should watch this movie. It's excellent, excellent movie, right? Really, really good movie. Please watch it if you get a chance. And it's about this guy called Schmidt. Okay, that's why the movie... Oh, no, no, before that, go back, go back. Okay, so his name is Schmidt. And basically, it, it, it begins a movie where he retires and he leaves work. And he's been working in the same company for all his life. And then when he retires, he starts thinking about life. Because when he goes back to his office one day, to, because he left something behind, I think, he realizes that his life's work is actually all in the garbage dump. They basically just moved all his stuff and threw it all away. And the new young person that comes basically doesn't need any of his knowledge at all. He's retired. Right? He finds it very hard to talk to his wife. Uh, he, he, you know, his daughter is estranged to him. So the only person that he really can speak to is... Uh, okay, next slide. This, he, he adopts uh, like this UNICEF boy, charity... African boy who he gives money to every week to give for food and, and he writes letters to this boy. He's the only person who he really tells what he really feels. And at the end of the... Oh, I can't tell you the... <laughs> but near the end of the movie, he writes, he writes this. Okay, next slide. And it's, it's, I think it really sums up uh, his reflections on life. He says, you know, relatively soon I will die. Maybe in 20 years, maybe tomorrow, it doesn't matter. Once I'm dead, and everyone who knew me dies too, it will be as though I never existed. What difference has my life made to anyone? None that I can think of. None at all. Now, I think that's, uh, a, in a way, a very accurate reflection on life, isn't it? That's exactly what we learn here. It's like, after you die, and after the people who knew you die, it would be as if 
you never existed at all. What difference would it have made right, to the people around you? And that's why this passage here it really is trying to show us the meaninglessness of this life. But the teacher then goes on to explore another topic in verse 12. Right? He, he looks at wisdom. Maybe the answer is in wisdom. If I can apply my mind to knowledge, perhaps there is meaning in life. So in verse 12 he says, I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless. A chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, Look, I've increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom, and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much knowledge. The more knowledge, the more grief. Now, this will be very shocking for the Jewish reader right, of the Old Testament. Because actually, if you look at um, the Bible, you'll see that the book before this was the book of Proverbs. And the Proverbs actually extols wisdom. Wisdom is a good thing, according to the book of Proverbs. But there's a very big difference between the book of Proverbs and the book of Ecclesiastes. You see, uh, the book of Proverbs in the beginning, if you look at this slide, begins from a top-down perspective. Right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. So in the book of Proverbs, wisdom is a top-down uh, sort of process where God gives wisdom to people. But Ecclesiastes is a very different sort of wisdom. It is a wisdom under the sun. It is a wisdom where he's trying to find meaning without reference to God, without God coming into the picture. And so as he looks at wisdom under the sun, wisdom without reference to God, he says that actually wisdom is meaningless. Right? It is a burden. And he gives two reasons why wisdom, with much study and exploration, cannot give meaning in this life. The first one is in verse 15, the first reason, right? Where he says in verse 15, what is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. Now there are two ways to read this verse. You can read it on just a normal uh, reading where he's basically saying, you know, look, something is twisted, right? You can't straighten it. Um, so, long time ago, uh, you could buy these uh, clothes hangers, which were just made of uh, like simple aluminium. Right now, it's all plastic. But you know, olden days, you used to get these aluminium uh, clothes hangers. You could sort of bend it all over the place, you know, to like you know, when you lose your keys in the drain, you can sort of get it out, right? So you know, once you bend these uh, aluminium 
clothes hangers, you can't straighten it anymore. It's impossible to be straightened, right? And what he's saying here really is saying, look, the world as it is, there are some things which are twisted, which even the application of the greatest wisdom cannot straighten. There are some things which are lacking, which you just cannot count. It's basically saying, like, okay, let's say I have 250 cents. No matter how I rearrange my 50 cents, I cannot come up to $2, right? Because I only got 250 cents. If, if your maths is good, you understand what I'm saying, right? Okay, 250 cents cannot come up to $2. No matter how you, you do it, it cannot come up to $2. And I think that's very true because the application of wisdom in this world is always frustrated with the reality of the nature of this world. Okay, I was going to use this uh, illustration but maybe it's a bit politically sensitive, but, but I'll say since it's America, right? So you think of Obama, okay? Obama, he's quite a smart guy. He poured all his wisdom, you know, to be president for two terms. And now you've got another president who's undoing everything he's doing, right? You can have wisdom. You can apply yourself. But does it actually change things? So someone in my Bible study was saying, you know, they spend many, many, many years on this project at work. And then this project was meant to do a lot of good for a lot of people. They had all these guidelines people were following. This guy poured all his energy and wisdom into it. Then he left and did something else. Then when he came back to his old role, he found, hey, all the time I applied myself with wisdom to this project, it's all been changed. No one's following anymore. Everybody's going back to their old ways of doing things, even on a big level, I was reading in the newspaper just a couple of days ago that they say that the next big problem of this world will be a, a global pandemic of flu or some virus, right? Because, you know, now apparently all over the world, there's, a, there's all these outbreaks of disease. So even in Africa now, there's an Ebola outbreak. You, you know, if you read the newspaper, apparently it's not very well reported. And they're saying, you know, look, even with the application of all our technology, all our science, all our knowledge, all our medicine, we can't stop all these diseases which are coming. Where do these diseases come from? How do we stop them? Nobody knows. Because even with the greatest wisdom, we cannot straighten what is twisted or count what is lacking. But another way of reading this passage is on a moral basis, right? because in the, in the idea of being twisted, is also the idea of something being wrong with, with that person, right? You know, if I say, oh no, that guy's a very twisted person, it, you could also mean that he's morally something wrong with, with that person, right? What is lacking in that person? There's some, something lacking in that person is because morally they are lacking. So I was reading, um, actually I brought from the library this book about this serial killer in uh, America, right, called the Golden State Killer, right? And he, apparently he killed many, many people, and he's only just been found recently. And you kind of ask yourself, look, you know, with all the application of wisdom, why are people still murdering other people? Why do they still have criminals? Why do they have people cheating? Why do they have people oppressive and, 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 and you know, being inhumane to other people? Can the application of wisdom actually change the way the world is? And the answer is no. And therefore, he says in verse 18, right? In fact, for with much wisdom comes much sorrow, the more knowledge, 
the more grief. See, wisdom, in a sense, study. Uh, I'm not saying you should uh, drop out of school, right? Uh, we'll come to that later in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Actually, there are a lot of good things about wisdom, but wisdom cannot provide meaning because the more you know, the more you realize that you cannot actually change things and you realize the limitations of your knowledge. So as we come to the end of Ecclesiastes chapter 1, what the teacher is really trying to say is, if you look at the world just in the broad strokes, just in one chapter, it cannot hold enough substance to give you meaning. Not in work, not in toil, not in human society, not in human nature, not in wisdom. It's like the idea of, you know, uh, you put things in the paper bag, right? Next slide. Oh, okay, yeah, the paper bag, right? So you know when the paper bag, uh, obviously we don't use paper bags anymore, maybe that's why, right? We use plastic bags. But even so, when you, when you put too many things in the paper bag and it gets wet, it, it will break. And that's the point that the teacher is trying to make. Under the sun, everything is havel, fleeting, transitory, meaningless. There is, it's like a wet paper bag. It breaks when you try to give it the, the meaning and the substance that you're looking for. Right? Everything is very sien. Everything is very weary as you try to find meaning in this life. So I think that as we come to this book, it will be inadequate if we just end here, right? Even though I, I was thinking of, can we just end here? You all feel very bad and that's good enough, right? Because actually that's what the book of Ecclesiastes is trying to make you do, right? It's like you're trying to look at everything under the sun and you try one thing, oh, it makes you very sad. You try another, it makes you very sad until you come to the end, right? But I thought I'll spare you that, right? Because as we look in the Bible as a whole, the answer is not found under the sun. But rather, meaning can only be found in something coming outside of this world. Right? And we read in John chapter 1, oh, okay, next slide. Oh, yep, there it, is. it says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. See, if we just look at life under the sun, everything is very weary, very sin, right? It just goes round and round. There's no beginning, there's no end, there's no direction, there's no purpose, there's no goal, there's no fulfillment. But it's only when we look outside of life under the sun, when we look at God, when we look at Jesus coming to this world, that we see that life has a purpose. That there is a direction, there is a meaning. The things under the sun were not meant to give us meaning because there is no substance to it. What gives this life substance is God Himself coming to this world and showing us the light in the darkness. So I think that I would like to close with this quote, which uh, I remembered uh, when I was quite young as well. 
It's by this uh, writer called Thoreau. And he says, The mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. I think that's very true, right? Because if you live life under the sun, looking for meaning, for things in this world under the sun, you will always be quietly desperate because they cannot hold. It's impossible for it to give you that meaning. You only find meaning when God comes into the picture, when Jesus comes into the picture. And He has come into the picture in the person of Jesus Christ who brings light into our darkness. So I pray that as we journey through the book of Ecclesiastes, as we keep exploring the different things under the sun, we will see that ultimately we need to turn to God Himself and Jesus. Because without God and Jesus, without that light, there is no meaning. There is nothing substantial enough to give meaning to our lives. Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we want to pray that today's word would help us to stop, to take a deep breath, to step back from our lives, from our busyness, from our distractions, from our pleasures, to step back and to reflect for a moment, to ask ourselves, what gain is there in this life under the sun? Is there really anything substantial and meaningful enough in this life under the sun? And help us to see through the deep reflections of the teacher that truly under the sun, everything is havel. It is like steam from a kettle. It is like dew in the grass in the morning. It's here and then it's gone, it's meaningless. And all the more that we may turn to our knowledge of you, turn to the person of Jesus, his death and his resurrection, the fact that he is the creator, the fact that he will come again to give us meaning in this life. For with Jesus there is direction, there is purpose, there is meaning, there is light in darkness. And we pray that all the more our faith in Jesus will be strengthened. And we pray for all these things in Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.